Ever since I went into broadcasting, I always knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to interview people, share their stories. Well, that's exactly what this podcast is about. But what do I call this thing? Let's keep it simple, shall we? My name is Vida Grubac and I've been living in the United States as an international student for about three years. And this is VDoc's Corner. This is going to be a very interesting start to this podcast journey, let's call it that. For the first episode of VDoc's Corner, I have someone special. Three years ago, I came here to America to study broadcasting, and one of those people that influenced me the most in my three years of being at CRC, because I'm at River College, for those of you who don't know, was Terry Finnegan, my instructor. And this is who I have in studio with me today. Good morning, Professor. Good morning, Virak. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, very honored to be the first guest on your podcast. Thank you very much for being the first guest. It's an honor to interview you. Well, thank you. Now, what we haven't told the listeners yet is you're retiring. I've got one week to go. After how many years of doing well, this? Well, I've been at CRC for 20 years now. That is 40 consecutive semesters, and I sometimes tell the class I'll, I don't feel like I'll ever graduate. No break? No, well, we have a summer break. I did teach a couple summer courses, but uh, no, I didn't take a break. I've taught fall and spring semesters since uh, 1999. After two decades of being in the field of education, how does it feel to finally— Well, I, I feel surrealistic a bit because I realize next week are my last two classes. And now, now I actually I, taught at the University of Illinois for 11 years. I began teaching in 1986. Wow. So that's, what, 33 years ago. So I've done it quite a while, and it's an odd feeling as I walk to the building to realize this is coming to an end. Now, are you actually retiring? Because we had this— No, no, I talked about it for years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm actually going to retire. You can talk about something till you're blue in the face— or you can do it, and I'm ready. You know, there comes a time, I think, in everyone's life, you realize there's time for changes, and you can either think about it or do it, and I'm going to do it. Okay, that's a very good analogy. That That's cool. So let's go back, way back, when all this The way back machine? Okay. Yes, yes. Let's jump into a time machine and go back to 1970 what was it 1978 1978 right. you joined the navy well i actually joined in 77 but you have to go through basic training or navy boot camp and uh, i had a junior college degree in liberal arts but i'd never really thought about broadcasting but i enjoyed uh, writing and uh, math was not my strong suit so in the military you take an aptitude test and they said to me, stay away from anything mechanical or electronic. Said, okay, I can do that. <laughs> and they said, you have very strong writing skills. And I always enjoyed history. And they said, we're going to make you a journalist. And I thought I'd work on a paper. And then they came back and said, a broadcast journalist. So I went to school for nine months, the Defense Information School, to train in radio, television, and closed-circuit TV because then I was assigned to a ship in the Pacific Fleet as a journalist, 
and I ran a closed-circuit television station on the USS Kansas City. Now, let me ask you this. Why the Navy? Was that the only option for you back then well, to get yeah, into broadcasting? Uh, I didn't come from an economically advantaged background. I had a very loving mother and father, but I'm from Chicago. Very blue-collar background. I spent a lot of years working in factories and manual labor, and I realized I was too lazy for that. And uh, my father had been in the Army in World War II, but my grandfather... I'd been in the Navy in World War II, and he always said they have the best chow, the best food. <laughs> so that was, to be honest, that was one of the reasons I went. And I wanted to travel, see the world. I'd never been out of Chicago. I was 21 years old before I ever saw the Pacific Ocean. The Navy's process, where does that begin? Well, my family had moved to Stockton, California. I was working as a busboy which uh, I didn't enjoy. I couldn't get into school as a resident, didn't have the money. I actually was sitting with my brother. He's a year younger, and um, I was engaged at the time, and I wanted to get out of that. And I saw a commercial on television for the Navy. And uh, my mother happened to be out of town because she probably wouldn't let us go down there. But we walked down to the recruiting office the next morning, did the paperwork, it took the test, and uh, voila, we were in the Navy. Uh, within a week, we were sworn in. So how did you get to run a closed-circuit television station? For you, it was on a ship, right? It was on a ship, an yeah. oiler, the USS Kansas City. It was out of Alameda, California. At the time, in broadcasting in the Navy, you could go to either a shore command, like Armed Forces Radio and Television, or to a shipboard command. And through luck of the draw, I was assigned to the fleet. Did you start it all, or did you guys already have whatever was necessary to start a closed circuit. Uh, the ship had been equipped with cameras and a studio for two years, but they had nobody to fill the job. So I was the first one on that ship, which is advantageous, and then nobody could tell me what to do. But the downside was a lot of times I had no one to turn to. So it was really on-the-job training. So it was trial and error, so to speak. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. But the nice thing about closed circuit is your ratings are 100%. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've got to remember the context. This is 1978. There was no internet. I was overseas for uh, a year and a half in the Indian Ocean. On a ship, you either worked or looked forward to food, and there was nothing to do. So I was a pretty popular fellow with control of the TV station. I'd have programming flowing in from Armed Forces TV every two weeks, coming by helicopter. And it was all on three-quarter inch tape, very archaic. And I had tape machines. And I did a little newscast at night. And uh, very popular station because it was the only one in town. <laughs> Now, what do Navy folks watch? You're not watching, like, I don't know, the Sci-Fi Channel or something like that? No, no. We got prime time from the States, sporting events. But back then, the game would have been over for two weeks. Because, well, you got to remember, we didn't have the communications that we do now. There was no cell phone, no well, Internet. We were isolated. We were in the Indian Ocean in the middle of nowhere. And the only news and information they got was from me, which was, like I said, sporting events. The game had been over for two weeks, <laughs> but I had the video. No spoilers, at least. You had to be very careful because you could have made a lot of money because you knew the outcome. <laughs> 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 I actually saw some people get in a lot of trouble. Oh, okay. Yeah, because uh, you could make money on a bet. After running a 
closed circuit television mm -hmm. station. You became a news anchor afterwards. Well, yeah. Well, I went to. Uh, I was enlisted in the Navy, and I, when I got off active duty, I was a second class petty officer, an E five. The structure is E one through nine for enlisted, and then officers are called zeros, O one up to admiral, which is a. I was gonna say, please explain that for us, not yeah, it's non Navy a, people. It's a two tiered society. Uh, you enlist for a certain term, three or four years back then, active duty, and get commissioned as an officer. It's actually approved congressional approval, and that's an open ended term. I eventually went back in the Navy in the Reserve and got a commission because I went from the ship and used the GI Bill to go to college. So I was a 26-year-old college sophomore at Humboldt State University. Now, what was studying like back then? Well, it's... it was, uh, I think, a little more intense because you couldn't Google anything. There was no Wikipedia. Libraries you, I, people? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got a degree in news editorial, newspaper work. I mistakenly thought there was a degree in broadcasting there. But I worked in newspapers a bit. And then uh, they had a radio station, KHSU. And uh, I started out there as a reporter, and I really enjoyed it. I liked the pace, and I worked hard at it, and I became news director. So walk me through a newsroom of that time. I walk in there, and what is it I see, and what is it I hear? Okay, back then, radio news, the first thing would be smoke. We all smoked cigarettes back then. A lot of smoking. Okay, uh, is that how you got the raspy voices and stuff? May, yeah, I, I think so. I smoked for 40 years, unfortunately. But back then, it was a very loud place. We had an old AP machine. I think Pearl Harbor might have come over it. It was very loud, clank, clank, clack, click, click. And so you'd walk in, and the wired service would be going morning, noon, and night. And it was such an old machine. It was One of my first jobs there was at the end of the night, to walk the machine back to the corner. It wasn't bolted down, so it would be walking across the newsroom during the day. A lot of telephones. Like I said, there was no internet. You spent a lot of time going through the archives. You had to physically get a book or an old record and go look up information the old-fashioned way. Say you have some breaking news and panic starts happening because you got to figure everything out yeah. for your next newscast. Well, in radio, we could break in on the air. We did newscasts at that station on the hour. If a really large breaking news story occurred, we could break into the music programming. We'd just give the heads up to the DJ, the jock, and say, this is a bullet and we've got to get over the air right now. Any news story that sticks out to you from that time? Well, there was an armed robbery in town, a bank robbery, and I was the first one to find out about it because I had a good contact at the police station. So I was very proud of myself in that before anybody knew at any other radio or television station, I got on there first with the fact that the bank downtown had been robbed within minutes. I was very proud of that. Although I learned a humbling lesson. I remember the lead I wrote was three armed men went into the bank and blah, blah, blah. And this old man called me up. He goes, well, they're going to be easy to catch. I said, what do you mean? Hmm. He said, they have three arms. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Taught me a lot about writing. <laughs> when I teach writing here, I'm continually saying, write for the ear. It may look good on paper, but when you say it out loud, <laughs> it means something different. Compared to today, what has changed in the broadcasting business? What's the biggest change we went through? Oh, 
I think speed, the speed of communication, I think the sheer amount of information out there. It's a double-edged sword, the 24-7 news cycle, and that there's a lot of repetition, but the competition is so intense. I think the quality of the stories has suffered. We're in a crisis right now with the journalism under fire. Now... People, I'm not going to get into politics here. Don't worry. But I got to ask, yeah. was fake news a thing back then? No, no, no. You were either right or wrong. It wasn't a term then. We were taught, very old school, you get it fast, but above all, you get it right. Accuracy meant everything. You double and triple checked information and sources. You didn't go on the air thinking you knew. As I said, it gets the competition. Remember, for 35, 40 years in television, and I eventually went from the radio to television and reported and produced and anchored a newscast, there were three networks, not including PBS, but ABC, CBS, and NBC. Now, if I have a satellite at home, I could spend all day channel surfing and not start over. Was it hard to get into the business back then, or is it easier now? Because pretty much every person with a Internet connection and a little bit of equipment. I think in some regard, depending on what you do, it's easier now. Let's say I want to start a podcast. Yeah. I can start a podcast. Back then, I didn't have that because of technology. When I started out in radio, VDOC, this will date me, I had a razor blade, reel-to-reel tape, and a splicing block. And then we had different colored leader tape. There was no such thing as Audition or Final Cut Pro It was time-consuming, but you certainly learned how to put a story together. But you'd be cutting tape with a razor blade and taping it on the wall with different colored leader to remember what it was. Now, for those of you that have never experienced working with a reel-to-reel tape, I've done this in my first radio job. My local radio station in my hometown is one of the oldest around in that area. They have stopped using reel-to-reel machines, but they still had them, and I did it for fun. And let me tell you, it's doable, and it's fun to do. You're very proud of yourself afterwards, but it's a lot of work. It's very time-consuming. Now, did anything ever get wrong in the last minute or something like that? Tape got unspooled or something like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. You learn to be quick on your feet. We had cart machines. The cart would jam. The reel-to-reel would come off the spool and... You got used to it. That was part of the training. There was no redos in live news. How did you handle those problems, dead air or something like that? Well, as best I could. I don't remember anything specific that was a complete disaster, but I did have a friend who was working at a radio station in Rockford, Illinois, spinning records, actual vinyl records. And he put on a, uh, he thought it was a long playing album. It was dead of winter minus 10 degrees, and he went outside to have a cigarette, and he locked himself out of the station (laughs) And for until the general manager came, and he came close to getting fired. Listeners heard, (laughs) so you just dealt with it. What kept you in that job? Ratings? Ratings, yeah. When I uh, became an anchor person, you become the face of the station, but also if the ratings go down, you're the first one to take a hit. And it's just natural. It's all about ratings because the way our system operates is it's 100% on advertising revenue. 
And that depends on the number of listeners or viewers you have. Every quarter, they do what's called the book. You want to sell airtime, you've got to tell a prospective client, this is how many people we reach. And then at this time of the day. So ratings, that's the name of the game. How does one find a job in broadcasting? Is it word of mouth? Is it knock, knock, can I have a job or something like that? You're pretty close to that. Yeah, like I said, uh, it's internships, it's contacts, and it's working hard. I've seen talented people not make it because they get lazy. I've seen that in television in particular. There's a false glamour to it, where because I'm on television, I'm smarter than others or... I'm better than others, and it's not true, but I've seen people uh, get complacent, and you got to realize there's 10 people in line for your job. How did you choose the people you worked with? A lot of times I didn't have a choice. I produced a newscast, which meant I was responsible for the content and the lineup, but I wasn't in charge of hiring. I had somebody once, a young lady, who my news director hired for her looks alone. She couldn't write. I don't even know if she could read. But I once suggested to her, why don't you do the weather? She goes, well, I can't do that. I said, why? She goes, I don't know all my states. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, back then. Where do you go from there? Yeah, I said, okay. And then I would look for the easiest feature story to assign her a third grade spelling bee and hope she didn't misspell the word. (laughs) How long did that last? She didn't last too long. But uh, still. She was hired simply because she she could read a teleprompter. She sounded like she knew what she was talking about. It gets down to credibility when it comes to news. And if you sound good and look good and have a sincerity, the viewers will believe you. What's easier to do, you think, radio or television? It's sort of comparing apples and oranges in that back then radio was quicker. You had to be faster. I can remember I had a Marantz tape recorder. And I could grab somebody in City Hall in a corner and get that story. When I went to television, back then the uh, recording deck was attached to the camera with a cable, very heavy equipment. You had lights. I mean, you were tied down, and it was so cumbersome back then to try and get around. It was very heavy equipment compared to today. It's hard for young people to imagine a world where you don't have a cell phone. You don't have the internet. You don't have digital technology. I think people talk to each other more back then. There's more conversation. It's just hard for somebody under 30 to imagine a world without that because you, for example, you grew up around computers. I was 31 years old before I got my first computer, and it was the first one on the block, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So uh, it was a different world. Can you remember your first day in television, the day you oh, I do. crossed over? I do. That. Well, the way I got my job was I was a good radio reporter, and uh, I wanted to go to television. I thought there'd be a little more money, but I was a very good reporter, and I ran into the news director of the local station at a party, Christmas party. And he was a little drunk, but he said, do you think you're better than my reporters? I said, I'm better than anybody in your newsroom. He says, Wow, that's some confidence. Well, you had to have confidence. I had taken a television course in college, so I knew how to use an old Sony camera. But anyway, I got the job, and I thought my first day I'll get the lay of the land. I'll see how it works here. This guy was old school. He said, you know how to use a camera? I said, yeah. 
He says, go into the parking lot and play around with it, learn how to focus it, because you're going to do a story on a SWAT team demonstration for the 6 o'clock newscast tonight. (laughs) What? (laughs) Wow. Wow. Fortunately, I had an editor. (laughs) But I did it. Not the best work I've done, but that's my first day. I never forget that feeling like I'm going to die. Now, how does one go beyond the first day, let's say? You walk in there and like something goes awry and how do you keep yourself motivated to do this? Because it's very easy. Well, I think it, to, it comes down to your basic personality. It's a yeah. tough business. It's very easy to get discouraged. The thing about broadcasting is everybody's you have thick skin. Yeah. Real thick skin. Yeah. yeah. I can remember I was doing a sports cast. It was only my second one. It was a Sunday news sports cast the director's second day, and I had edited all those stories together on tape. Unfortunately, I put them all on one reel, one tape, and during the live show, the director accidentally hit fast forward. Oh. It's football. Yeah. I've got 12 highlights strung together, and then she hits pause, so it's a freeze frame. It was disastrous. Now, that wasn't my fault. But the next day, everybody in town said, boy, you screwed up yesterday. <laughs> so you learn to just take it. There's no point in trying to explain, well, there's a director and there's tape. They'll just take it. Yeah, just, take it. it's easier. You got to be tough. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be tough. After you did radio and you right. did a little bit of television, You ended up teaching broadcasting at the University of Illinois. How did right. that happen? Uh, once again, uh, you know, I always tell my students you need a goal and a plan. I sort of fell into stuff. I uh, had been out in California. I wanted to get a master's degree in broadcasting because I had an associate's degree in liberal arts. I had the bachelor's in news editorial, print journalism. And my wife was from Champaign, Illinois. She happened to be back there because her father was ill. And that's where the University of Illinois is. And I grew up knowing about it. never thought I'd have a chance to go there. And they made me a producer of the 11 o'clock news in addition to producer of the 6 o'clock news. And I said, I need a raise. Well, in lieu of a raise, they gave me a title of executive producer. So I wasn't happy. And I asked her if there was a master's program in broadcast journalism, if so, to send me the paperwork. And so she did. And I, when I filled it out, it said, do you want an assistantship? I put no. Fellowship. What's, what's an assistantship? You'd work for money as an assistant. Uh, you might have to pay it back or a fellowship. But it said full hmm. tuition and fee waiver. Oh, okay. I marked yes. Never thinking I'd get it. I got a letter two weeks later, congratulations, you have a full tuition and fee waiver. So I told my boss, sayonara, <laughs> and uh, I went to the University of Illinois. It was a wake-up call. I'd been out of school a while, and to walk into a master's program, yeah. and I did it in a year and a half. Wow. I was young then. I had a lot of energy. <laughs> but uh, You got to have it if you're yeah. going to do it in a year and a half. Right. Well, while I was there, my wife became pregnant with twins. And I was going to go back into the business, and uh, I actually had a job interview in Amarillo, Texas. I flew out there, but I felt like a fish out of water with steer heads on the wall, and <laughs> I'm from Chicago. The kids were born, and I just read a book by Dan Rather, the CBS uh, reporter and anchorman, called The Camera Never Blinks. 
and he was talking about the incredible time demands working in news. And I had just read a chapter where he said he came home from work one day, and his son was there with a friend, and his son, rather than saying, hi, Dad, said to his friend, there's Dan Rather. He's on TV. And I wanted to raise my kids. So I was thinking, well, what do I do next? Out of the blue, I get a call from the University of Illinois. I was very well known there. I did a lot of investigative reporting. I did a story as a graduate student, then generated three lawsuits. And they had to <laughs> wow. lock up about 40 videotapes for a year. Hmm, I was okay. right. I was right. And I was vindicated. Nothing came of it. So I was pretty well known. And anyway, a professor left very suddenly. This was like three weeks to the semester, taught radio. And they said, would you like to teach for a year? You know, I always thought I'd be burnt out in 60 when I started teaching, like a lot of the professors I saw. <laughs> but I said, sure, I'll give it a shot for a year. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. And that year now has turned into 33 years. Timing, right place, right time. I was at a crossroads, and I got a phone call. Was it weird to all of a sudden go into teaching after being in TV oh, and radio? Well, I'll tell you. Talk about scary first days, VDoc. I just turned 30. I'd never taught before. Mm. Here I am at a major university, youngest member on the faculty. And here's my first class. And I thought, what do I do now? All eyes on you. Yeah. Well, I wasn't used to that. I was used to looking into a camera. Yeah. But before I opened the door, I said, what do I do? And then I thought of every lousy teacher I'd ever had. And I thought, I'll do the opposite of that. Whether I was good or bad, I don't know. But I was hired after that year. And... Uh, you know, eventually stayed, uh, I was there 10 years, 10, 11 years. You got the education bug. I liked helping people. My mother used to say it was a social worker syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I just liked it. I'd never done it before, and I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. It was harder than I thought. I thought, well, teaching college is easy. You go in and talk for 45 minutes and go home. That's it. <laughs> it's yeah, a lot more. no. Particularly <laughs> journalism. It is so labor-intensive on the teacher side because you're grading content, writing style. Did they do the story in the right format? There's a lot of variables, and it's not like a math book, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and always will. It's subjective in many ways. And uh, I think because of my background as a news producer, you have to be somewhat of an amateur psychologist. I think that helped me quite a bit when I began teaching because I had to figure out what will motivate this individual student? And what do I have to do to motivate another one? Because everybody's different. Mm. And some I could be harder on. So a Navy commander, broadcaster, teaches a University of Illinois class. Did any of your Navy mindset translate into the field of education? Oh, it sure did. In journalism, I'm a stickler for facts. If you got a fact error in any story from me, automatic F. Okay. If, let's say, somebody's 33 years old and you say 32 or 34 in your story, that's an F because you have to be right. Journalism's serious. You're dealing with people's lives. You can ruin somebody through an attentiveness or maliciousness. But uh, I use that military discipline, I think. Because when I went back into the Navy, I got a commission as a public affairs officer, and that kept me sharp on writing skills, but also I ended up being director of media training for the Naval Reserve with a studio in San Diego and one in Illinois. And 
I trained senior naval officers how to prepare for TV interviews, like with CNN, 60 Minutes, yeah. 2020. I wrote a lot of stories for the Navy stuff, but also keep current with reporting and met a lot of reporters, too. So I was able to take that to the classroom. What did a typical year at University of Illinois look like as a instructor? Thing? It was different than at Consumers River College. My first semester here, I thought it'd be my last. I was so tough. <laughs> I lost half the class. Yeah. But I taught only juniors and seniors, so I didn't teach brand-new freshmen. The students I saw they had declared the major, and uh, I also uh, ran the graduate program, worked with graduate students from many different countries and of all ages and backgrounds. I was on committees all the time, very time-consuming. In fact, uh, I once was wondering, how many committees are there at this university? <laughs> so I got the list. I actually had a student do a feature story on this. I found one called the Committee on Committees. Wow. So I said, what do they do and who watches them? Once again, my Navy experience helped me tremendously because of the bureaucracy. Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of hoops and red tape. And I had learned very early on in the military how to get around stuff and yeah. get my own way, but they don't know it, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. lack of a better word, how did you end up at CRC after University of Illinois? Did once they again, not treat you right or something like no, that? No, no, once again, completely unforeseen. My parents lived in Stockton, California, you know, 40 miles south of here. And uh, my mother got ill in uh, 1993 with lung cancer. Oh. And she uh, passed away in 1996, but I had three kids my sister was out here, and my brother and their children. And I wanted my children to know my dad, to know their aunts and uncles and families. Yeah. So uh, when I moved to California, it was right after my mother died, I moved to Sutter Creek, California. Sight unseen, no job. I'd been in real estate in Illinois part-time and had income property, so I had enough money to swing the move, but I didn't know what to do. And when I bought my house in Sutter Creek, I realized the realtor I was speaking with didn't know what she was talking about. So I said, let mm. me put it together. And they said, have you ever worked in real estate in California? I said, no. They said, would you like to? Well, I'll give it a shot. They said, well, you have to go to school. But because I had a real estate license in Illinois, they said, all you have to do is take the test. So I said, okay. So I went to Delta College. Bought a textbook, real estate book, signed up for the test, read the book over the weekend. The thing is, I get to the test and people are there, what school you go to? I didn't. This is my third time. I go, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, anyway, I passed it. And uh, I didn't enjoy it because, uh, you know, I was in the Navy still, in the reserve. and. Yeah. I had a house listed, but then I'd go to Pearl Harbor for three weeks. I never got a commission because I was always gone at the closing. So I had shown a house in Jackson, California, and the woman who was selling it went to Folsom Lake College. She was doing public relations class and something for the Folsom Zoo. And I said, I can give you a hand with that. I used to do this. So I helped her with her project. She happened to know the dean of the College of Communications at CRC. So I got a call out of the blue in Sutter Creek, 45 miles away. It said, is this Terry Finnegan? Yes. Did you teach broadcast journalism at the University of Illinois? I said, yes. 
They said, would you like to teach a semester at CRC? Hmm. I'd never heard of CRC. I said, what's CRC? (laughs) (laughs) So I said, I'll give it a shot. And that was uh, August of 1999. What did CRC look like back then? Oh, it was much smaller. People who don't know this campus won't know the buildings I'm talking about, but like the Learning Resource Center building wasn't here. The Wind Center building wasn't here. The parking deck wasn't here. It was field in many ways. For those of you who don't know, the two buildings that were just mentioned, the Wind Center and the Learning Resource Center, when you walk in there, you can tell that those buildings are new. They smell like a new car. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your first day at CRC? What was it like? It was a, a broadcast journalism class. I had uh, 17 people. I had taught before. I was a little rusty, I thought. But as I said, I was using graduate school, University of Illinois standards. And within three weeks... How does that work? Not well. But in three weeks, eight students dropped a class. I said, wow. This is too hard. I said, <laughs> okay. And so it was an adjustment. It was an adjustment. But over the years, I think the quality of students I've seen at CRC in many ways is heads and above the quality of a prestigious research university. Our television studio here, for example, phenomenal. I couldn't believe the size of it. And the equipment was changed over the years, but uh, it was much better equipped than I thought it would ever be. So that was fun. What do you think about when people say nowadays it's all about the piece of paper and the years you spend in college? What's your take on that? That's a double-edged sword. You need the piece of paper, if you will. But, you know, I've hired reporters over the years. Do they have common sense? Can they write? Yeah. That's why I always give current events quizzes in my journalism classes. Do you know what's going on in the world? That's what journalism is. You deal in daily current events. Now, people, don't get us wrong. We're not saying don't go to college. Oh, no, 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 no. We're saying just because you can't get a college education or for whatever reason you didn't get it when you thought the time was right to get it doesn't mean you're dead in the water. I used to hear occasionally, if I don't have this job by age 30, failure. If I don't have a degree by age whatever, no. I tell students... Always have a goal, an end goal, but life is messy. It's not a straight line. Yeah, My life's a perfect example. The way I fell into the Navy, fell into broadcast journalism, got into TV. It's recognizing opportunity and seizing opportunity. That's a good way to put it. I like that. What do you think caused this, oh, if I don't do this, and by then I'm a failure. And well, Was that like when you were... Not in- me, because I didn't come from a background that really... My grandfather was probably the most intelligent man I ever knew. And he had a drop out of school in fourth grade. He was born in 1890. His father was killed, and yeah. he had to support the family. And he always felt self-conscious about not having any formal education, but he read He knew a bit about everything. And he told us as kids, because as I said, we didn't come from a financially wealthy background. He told us as kids, if you can, get a college degree, because no matter what you do, they can never take it away from you. And I never forgot that. So my goal was to somehow get a college degree. And I used the Navy as a tool to get there. 
You were quite of a party person in college, was that true? <laughs> well, what's the statute of limitations on that? Yeah, I guess so. A lot of people think uh, Ron Burgundy was modeled on me in the movie Anchorman. I did have the tie, and I did the mustache. Again, here's some insight for the folks listening. Professor Finnegan, in our voice and diction class, he brought us old photos. Yeah. Of him in front of the camera, and like right. there's one with a microphone and doing newsy stuff, right. reporting. Yeah, exactly, yeah. The photos look like something straight out of Anchorman. The favorite comment I ever got when I pulled out those old pictures was this young lady goes, you used to be good looking. <laughs> I said, okay. you know, I had dark hair. <laughs> right. before I started teaching you people. <laughs> Is it ever too late to go into that business? I don't think so, no. Look at somebody like Mike Wallace, who worked to age 90, 91. Yeah. Robert Trout was with CBS News for 70 years. No. The traits I think a good journalist or reporter need, number one, is curiosity. And number two, wanting to know how things work and why things are the way they are. Yeah. And that's at any age. I've met middle-aged 20-year-olds and very young 65-year-olds. It's your state of mind. It's how yeah. you approach life. It is never too late, no matter what people tell you and no, no matter how old you think you are. It's how old you feel, basically. That's very true. And you know what? It's easy to get discouraged. But I'm the t maybe because of my background, the way I was brought up, if somebody tells me you can't do something, I'll show you. <laughs> I'll do it. Now, looking mm -hmm. back, can you pick out a moment that was your favorite here at CRC? Was there ever a moment like, wow, I contributed to that, like a, a student making it big in the business or something? The first like day I met you, Vito. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a confidence. I, I, I'll remember you. I'll remember you. Yeah, there's been many moments. I think uh, back in 2005, I think it was, this is the only time this school has done it, as far as I know. Uh, the local high schools do something called Every 15 Minutes, and it's about the dangers of drunk driving. And it's with the police department. It's very complicated. But anyway, we got tasked to produce a 15-minute video of the day, and it's at the school. It's got a car wreck. They have simulated accident victims at the hospital, at the jail. Wow. And it had to be shown at 11 a.m. the next day. Hmm. It had to be shot and edited overnight. We ended up finishing at no five, in the, five in the morning. No, <laughs> that was really an accomplishment. Yeah. And we got it done, and it was good. I approached it like D-Day. I had 10 crews in the field and tape handoffs. You're going to Denny's and making a deal for coffee at 3 in the morning. <laughs> uh, that was one that sticks out. So are you going to miss teaching? Oh, I'm sure I will. I'm sure I will. But as I said, you come to a point in life where you realize it's time. I'll use one analogy. I really like baseball. And when I was a young person, I'm from Chicago, I'd go to Wrigley Field. I got to see the great Willie Mays play, but it was 1972. He was an old man. I'd never saw him in his prime. And I remember saying to my father, he's not very good. My dad says, stop. <laughs> Let me tell you about Willie Mays. And on the other side of the coin, you can stay too long. Joe DiMaggio retired at age 36. In his last season, he played in terrible pain with bone spurs in his heels. Yeah. His teammate said, why do you play so hard every day? He goes, somebody may be seeing me for the first time. 
So he got out when he knew it's time. And when you still have your faculties, yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you still can function. As I said, when my mother got ill, she's the age I am now. And she was dead at age 66. My mother and father, for years, I grew up listening to them talk, when we retire, we're going to travel. We'll go here. We'll go. They never got to do it because yeah. she got sick. I'm at that age now where I'm like, I don't want to regret not doing that. So my wife and I plan to do some traveling. Montenegro's on one of my uh, spots. There you go. If you ever come my way, you know where to find me. I, I'll find you. After I met you, I went online and I read about it and looked at the culture and the food and the because uh, I think it's my journalistic background. I wanted to know about it because you it's mentioned pretty my, nice over there. I mean, yeah, it looks beautiful. Don't want to brag, but yeah, yeah. And that statue, you in the town square, is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I told him get my as I told you get my good side. The voice of Montenegro, yeah. right here. After all these years. How would you like your students to remember you? Somebody who tried his best to help people. Somebody who may have helped someone down the line. You know, when you teach, it's not instant gratification. Yeah. But maybe 10 years from now, maybe you'll do something, VDOC, 10 years from now. And say, and that, you know what? Terry helped me do this or get here. I'm sure I'll well, that, that's, remember it. That's, I think that's the beauty of teaching. You gotta have some people that influence you, and uh, we all do. Yeah, we all do. we need mentors. I got a confession to make. Uh oh, I was nothing <laughs> bad. Serious. <laughs> I was pretty busy in the past couple of weeks. Guess what I did? I don't know. I went around and no. asked <laughs> some of your uh -oh. current and former students to tell us how they will remember you, what their favorite moments are, and let's see. Did any, you know, did any money exchange hands? No, no. <laughs> it was all voluntary. It wow. was all voluntary. Oh, wow. You want to hear it? Sure. Let's see. Hi, my name is uh, Ricardo Rivera. Hey, my name is Kristen Sanchez, a.k.a. Just Sanchez. My name is Desiree Lacombe. Trisir Ballesteros. Jasmine Valdez. Kyle Cordova. Sam Turner. Lisa Roselli. Mariah Peck. This is Jenna Birmingham. I am Lauren Wagner, and I have worked with Terry for about 10 years. My name is Rebecca Withy. I am the instructional assistant for the RTVF program. Voice and Diction was the first class I ever had with Finnegan. I will have to say my first impression of him was intimidation. Sheer intimidation. He's just this big burly looking guy <laughs> in 2006 i took i want to say it was broadcast journalism he yelled at us there was no cell phones in the classroom he made it very clear that when he was speaking he was the only one speaking and made it clear that he was a navy commander he was not as lenient as he is now first time you see him he's just like this big strong guy and he he just looked like he just came out like retirement from like the army or something i was just like oh it's gonna be one of those classes a couple weeks later, actually getting to know him, he's like one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Voice and diction in the spring of 2017. I was a little scared of him at first. After getting to know him, I got a better connection with him and he kind of got me out of my shell. He is a very gregarious individual and would be intimidating if he wasn't just so friendly. And also he really knows what he's doing which is great in a teacher. My God, he's tall. He had a very pleasant demeanor about him. His smile, I noticed, and how tall he was. 
And he was very grateful for everything that I did. It didn't matter if I just said hi or I unlocked a door or I started cleaning things up. He was extremely grateful for everything. The first class I took with him was broadcast writing and announcing. Pretty standard for most professors, but um, like I said, he did look kind of like a big softy. So I figured the class would be a lot of fun. The first time I had Professor Finnegan was for my voice and diction class. This is a cool guy. He he knows his stuff. I actually could kind of polish my skills with him. You know, in our, our part-timer meetings, he was just happy. You know what I mean? He's like the big guy, like friendly, not, you know, that Midwest Chicago kind of thing that Terry has about him. So one of the funny things that happened was he was actually doing a lecture on a podcast. The Hotel Transylvania, my ringtone goes off, blah, blah, blah. And so he looks up and he's like, what? Sanchez. No, it's not me. Blah, blah, blah. It goes off again. I'm like, oh my God. There's no hiding that. It was totally me. I was always amused when Terry tried to make schedules because this entire time, these two semesters I've had with him, none of them have worked out. In the fall, we had the fire and things were closed. And every single class, he would come and try to have, okay, this is how it's going to be the rest of the semester. And then it just got messed up every time. And then he gave up. Sorry, Terry. I had to bring in my stuff because I was doing like a cooking show. I had to bring in all of my ingredients to class in a cooler and like this big cooler for like five days, five classes in a row because we kept on having to push mine back because of we had like to shut down early because of the fires, because of all the smoke that was on campus. It was a mess, but it like looking back on it now, it was pretty hilarious that I had to drag that huge cooler into class for three weeks. There were only like maybe nine of us in class, maybe even seven. But Terry was so stressed out and he was just sitting on the stairs in the the television studio with his head in his hands. So someone recorded him on the cameras and then we played the Hello Darkness, You're My Old Friend song. Uh, And it was just the greatest thing ever. Like everybody in class was dying. It was so funny. I will always remember him because of his dedication and his laughter and his excitement for what he does. And seeing all of that and then to be able to spend time learning from him, it's it's phenomenal. And he's completely influenced my life to want to go into news broadcasting. I did a final for his voice induction. I interviewed Rebecca, an instructional assistant, about her late husband. After he heard it, he wrote me an email and it was very detailed of how well I did on it. And I remember I cried the first time I read it. I just never told them about it. When I found out that Michaela got sick, Michaela's my daughter for all of you who don't know, we found out that she had a brain tumor. You know, if they had really stuck to black and white rules, campus rules, I wouldn't have made it that semester. Him and WAGS, with both of you being as supportive as you were and continue to be, I think that's something that I'll always take with me is your understanding and your compassion. He really pushed me to try and do things like live reading, which I was very uncomfortable with. And he really kind of pushed me outside of my comfort zone so that I could do those things. I'm a veteran as well. So I had a hard time once in the Veterans Center and he was there to help me. He consoled me. He, you know, gave me great advice. He was always there for us, especially other veterans as well. I think Terry really helped me when I became a full-time faculty member. 
just in that he had been there himself. So he gets it if I'm like, oh, Terry, you know, like, I'm sorry, I can't talk today. I have to get a schedule done or I have to do like budget stuff or, you know, and he just goes, it's all right, hang in there. I had to do that too. Terry, I just want to let you know that I'm so glad that you're going to be able to go out there and do something that right now and travel and enjoy your life because you've dedicated so much time and effort into helping others. I think it's wonderful that you help yourself and you enjoy your retirement with your wife. I personally want to thank you for everything you've done. I just can't thank you enough for just being who you are. I'll probably bump into you from time to time at Costco still. I will still be there November and December for my pies from the wifey. And if I ever do get my YouTube channel started, just know you had a huge part of that (laughs) if it's successful. So thank you, Finnegan. I'd like to thank you for all of the support and everything that you have given me over this last year and that you'd given me when I was a 17-year-old kid in your class. The influence that you gave me when I was in the Marine Corps that you didn't know about, I appreciate that as well. It was a nice boost and drive. And I hope you get to do all the travels that you talk about doing with your wife. Thank you for all of your years of service of pouring into two decades worth of students that are out making their mark out in the world. Know that you will be sorely missed, but please stay away. You need to, This is your time to relax and rest and not stay away in a bad way, but stay away in a, we love you from a distance, enjoy your life. And I look forward to seeing all of your amazing excursions on Facebook. You rock. Thank you for teaching me what news is all about. And one more thing, if I ever need a job, I'll probably be looking you up as a referral. So just be prepared for that, Mr. Finnegan. Whatever job I get next, I'll think about everything that you taught me this semester. And I really, really appreciate everything that you've done for me and for all of the students in the class. Enjoy your retirement. No more schedules. No more deadlines. Just go enjoy. Just thank you for everything. I really appreciate you and I wish you the best in life. Happy retirement. Finally. I just want to thank you for being you. I want to thank you for your sense of humor and how you wound up approaching how to deal with me as a student. It was fun. I do thank you for the help and the support that you've given me in my time there. And even when I wasn't in voice and diction, I definitely appreciate it. Try not to judge all the new people coming up in the news because they don't know any better. (laughs) They won't have you to teach them anymore. So forgive them their faults. I know that you and Joyce want to travel, and Ireland is on your list. If you make it to Dublin, go visit the Staircase. I lived there for a short time. It's on Anger Street. It's a short walk down from the Temple Bar. Go to the Keys, although they spell it Quays because we're Irish and we're weird, and get a pint or a few. Enjoy some classic music. Just have a good time, you know. Go out and enjoy. Get back to Chicago, see some Cubs games, travel, and let us know when there's events going on at the VFW and Bill and I will we'll show up and we'll hang out and we'll we'll split a beer with you or do a, a sweetheart dance or something like that. Hang in there. Slaunch it, friend. How did that feel? I think I need a Kleenex. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, wow. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. You deserve it. Thank you. So what is next for you? I don't know. I've never been retired, but uh, (laughs) I'm never bored. I always have things to think about and things to do, and I love to read. So uh, I'll be occupied. I'll be occupied. I'll give you the full interviews of those oh, people. There was a lot more said. I just didn't I have really, the time. I really, I really want to play that for my wife when she's angry with me. 
And I say, see, I'm actually a nice fellow. So this could help me, VDoc. Thank yeah. you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Do you have any words of wisdom for the people listening? Words of wisdom. Uh, well, try your best. My grandmother lived to be 97, and we were talking. She goes, you know when I went on my tombstone? I said, no, what? She goes, I did my best. You're not always going to succeed, but even if you fail, if you put in the effort and did the best you can, you'll learn from it and build on it. So do your best. People, remember that if you need to, click that little button next to the play button, rewind and listen to this again, because I think this is, this is something to live by. We're in this time where failure gets less and less of an option, but I think you learn from your mistakes. I mean, the sign of insanity is committing the same mistake over and over again. We all make mistakes. We're all human. We all frailties. But realize it's part of life. And if you can use that to build on it and do your best, you'll be okay. Now, you might have noticed I wasn't in that recording. so I wondered I'm, about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say my part now. Okay, yeah. First of all, thank you for everything you have done. Thank you for making this... 27-year-old Montenegrin <laughs> feel at home at CRC in your classes and enjoy your retirement. You deserve I, it. Thank you. I will. Thank you for your time and thank you You're for welcome. all the years of service. And lastly, thank you for joining me on my first episode of VDoc's Corner. Well, it was an honor to be the first guest. I really, I really do appreciate that. Thank you, Professor. Okay. There you go, people. That was... Professor Terry Finnegan, for those of you who don't know, and I'll post this in the show notes, this episode has been almost a month in the making, and the entire radio and television and film department of Cosumnes River College was in on it. I would like to thank the people that helped me put this together, all the people that participated in the little audio clip you heard. I'd like to thank my advisor, Lauren Wagner. This is the first episode of hopefully many to come, and uh, I hope you join me on the next one. Till then, bye-bye.